Praise God. Thank you for lifting your voices this morning. Wonderful singing. Open up your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 7 once again. Daniel chapter 7. This will probably be, no doubt, a multi-part sermon. I should tell you how long my notes are for this passage of Scripture. We will definitely not finish it today, but we will go as long as the Lord allows us to go. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for these wonderful truths that sinners can come, poor and needy, to come find the rest that they need. And you embrace sinners in your arms with your mercy and grace. Thank you for this wonderful truth and that Christ is our solid rock. He is our righteousness. And Lord, this is our hope, our confident assurance. Help us now as we look at Daniel 7. May the Spirit use your word to teach us and to sanctify us and encourage us and call us to repentance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We read chapter 7, verse 15 through 22 earlier in the service. In Daniel 7, this is our third week in this chapter, we see that Daniel is having a vision. It's an apocalyptic vision of what is to come. It's very similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. Very comparisons. A lot of comparable symbolisms there. The first week, we saw the four beasts representing four worldly empires. We saw... Last week, that Daniel then sees one like a son of man standing before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a throne and a dominion and a kingdom that should never fade away. Today, we're going to continue with verses 15 and on, although we've already preached through some of this already in the last two weeks. But what I want to do today primarily is focus on two of those verses. We're going to focus on verse 18 and verse, verses 21 through 22. Okay, so we've already given the picture of what is happening here. Dan is having a vision of the future. We said last week that Jesus upon his ascension went to heaven, stood before the Father, and he sat down at the right-hand side in victory, completing his mission, and now is ruling and reigning from heaven in the kingdom that God the Father has given to him to oversee. And when that is over, at the end of time, at his second coming, Jesus then delivers the kingdom back to the Father Let's focus on these two verses, which are very similar. Verse 18 says this, But the saints of the Most High 
shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. You thought forever was a long time. How about forever, forever, and ever? And look at verse 21 and 22. Sorry, there's three verses we're focusing on. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This will be our focus this morning as we break down the next thing that Daniel sees. He sees beasts ravaging God's people throughout time. But then the Son of Man ascends and rules and reigns from heaven, seating, sitting down at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days. But then to his people, this is what we're going to see, to the people of God, they possess the kingdom and they receive the kingdom. This is our focus today. Let's see what this means. First, let's break it down. We see that this is good news for only a specific group of people. Who are these people? Daniel says that they are saints. In verse 18, saints of the Most High. Or in verse 22, he says they are saints of the Ancient of Days. Who are these saints? What is a saint? Well, the original word written in Aramaic, which is this part of Daniel's written in Aramaic, literally means holy ones. That's what saints mean. They are holy ones. In the New Testament, the word saint is also translated from a Greek word, which means the same thing, holy ones. Who are these holy ones? They are all who know the Lord, who trust the Lord and obey the Lord. These saints are not holy because of their actions. They are holy because of the actions of another. This is the great Protestant doctrine that emerged from the Protestant Reformation known as justification by faith alone. That we are forgiven of our sins. We are declared to be righteous because of the faith that we have in God through Jesus Christ. And this is not invented in the New Testament by Paul. This goes way back to the Old Testament for even Moses writes of Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God's people are holy because God is holy and their God by their faith then gives them and credits to their account his holiness and righteousness to them. So therefore, all of God's people who believe in God and are justified by faith are then saints. Yes, Christian in here today, you are a saint. Oh, Dan, you don't know me. <laughs> you are a saint. Not because of who you are or what you have done, but because of what God has done for you and has credited to your account his righteousness, you are then seen in the eyes of God as holy. That is a miracle. And I know some of you. <laughs> Saints are not 
saints as deemed by the Catholic Church to be super-Christians who live across church history. A biblical saint is any believer in God. And we see that in the Old Testament, and we see that in the New Testament. So, the saints of the Most High who shall receive the kingdom, who are they? They are believers in God, and specifically in God's Messiah. But we see next that the saints have an enemy. The saints have an enemy. In Daniel 7, 18, the context is those four beasts that come out of the sea. And we have said repeatedly that those four beasts are symbolic representations of worldly empires that hate God. In the days of Israel, it was Babylon and Persia and Greece and then Rome. But really, these beasts do not just appear one time. They appear throughout history. They appear as the enemies of God. They even appear in the forms of Nero and Domitian, the Roman Caesars, or Hitler. We see anywhere the people of God are persecuted, it is because there is a beast that is roaring. And this is not new. This has been going on since the Garden of Eden. And Daniel, in verse 22, we see that the, the enemy of the saints in verse 22 is the little horn, which is a part of that fourth beast. And that fourth little horn, we said, represent Antichrist. Maybe a possibly an end times ruler that exists at the end of time, but he's just the last one in a long line of Antichrist who makes war and against the people of God. In verse 22, it says here that the little horn makes war against the people of God. He makes war, but to these saints, they have been given victory. These first Christians who saw the Caesars as a form of Antichrist in the first century would have believed this to be true of their world. They would have seen the little horn being represented by Nero or Domitian, two of the fiercest Roman Caesars that ever existed and who brought much persecution on the church. These Christians thought that this fourth beast, and rightfully so, was the Roman Empire. And therefore, because they believed in Jesus Christ, they were thrown to the lions. They were burned at the stake. Some of them were cut in half, beheaded. Some of them were sewed up in animal skins and lit as human torches to light the road. Daniel says, and the beast raged on. The little horn spoke great blasphemous things and made war with the saints, and it appeared as if he prevailed against them. Sometimes it looks like evil people win, doesn't it? It looks like, why, why do these people get away with all these things? Because the beast has been raging since the beginning of time. Can you imagine how these first Christians felt as the apostles, all of them, were killed? Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was also crucified. John survived being boiled in oil and then later died of natural causes. 
Matthew was killed by the sword. James was thrown off the roof of the temple a hundred feet, and he didn't die. So they got down to where James was and then beat him with clubs until he was dead. Bartholomew was beaten, filleted, and then later crucified. It looks like this little horn is making war and prevailing against these first Christians. And that's not true just of the first century. For today, the persecution of Christians continues on around the world, some of which you and I are completely ignorant about as Americans. Today in China, there are believers that are imprisoned for just going to church. In Muslim countries, there are believers that have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus. If you remember, a few years ago, there were 21 Egyptian Christians, Coptic Christians they're called, who were asked to recant of their faith in Jesus Christ. They had converted from Islam to Christianity, and they refused to recant of their faith in Christ, and so they were all beheaded on the beach. The beast rages on. Even today, this week, you may have saw the news that there is a bill in Israel that lawmakers are considering to make it illegal to share the gospel in Israel. Sounds like the book of Acts, chapter 3 and 4 and 5, right? And other wicked laws that have passed to prosecute and persecute the people of God. It looks like the beast is winning. It looks he's, he's making war, and it looks like he's prevailing. These difficult days, they're worse at certain periods of history. And these times come and go. But the one thing we remember when we read Daniel is that we should remember that God knows about all of this. And so what is the promise for these saints who have an enemy? The promise in verse 18 says specifically, they shall receive the kingdom. And in verse 22, judgment was given to possess the kingdom. The promise is victory and to possess the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that never fades away, that never falters, that is never usurped. And they will receive it and possess it as an inheritance. And the kingdom is one in which is worldwide, global, that everyone will have to bow the knee to God. And the saints will be ruling and reigning with the Son of Man in His kingdom, throwing down all evil beasts that have ever come their way. We saw last week in the same courtroom in Daniel chapter 7, as the Ancient of Days sits on His throne, that God issues a ruling against the beasts and this little horn. And we see that he judges them by fire and he kills them. We saw in Revelation chapter 20, the, the devil, the false prophet, the antichrist are thrown, the beasts are thrown into the lake of fire and they're judged by God. But look what verse 22 says, that judgment was given for these saints. God is now issuing a verdict, a sentence, in favor of the people of God. This is amazing. The judge sits on the throne and issues judgment on the beast, but he issues judgment in favor of his people. 
Think, picture, if you will, a grieving family hearing the words of a judge after being wronged by an evil person, the joy that comes on their face and the relief that comes on their face as the judge gives them justice for their oppression and justice for the evil atrocities that have been committed against themselves. This is what's happening in Daniel 7. Daniel's looking and he sees the beast being judged. And then he turns and he sees the people of God. And the Ancient of Days says, I'm issuing a judgment, a verdict on your behalf. And it is good news. These evil beasts ruled the world since the beginning of time. But now there's not a single one of them that will come from here on. Because the kingdom that never goes away, the everlasting kingdom, is now yours to live in. Yours to possess and to receive. The word possess there in Aramaic literally means to take ownership of, to occupy, or to receive as an inheritance. The people of God at the end of time receive the kingdom of God in its full manifestation. Everything belongs to who? God's people. Why? Because it belongs to God. We become inheritors through Jesus Christ. Not a single piece of real estate in the entire created order will ever belong to a beast forever. It only belongs to God. And when God rules, it's over. It's game over. We saw this last week. Look at verse 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, this is the ascension, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was giving dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's not their kingdom because they earned it. It's not their kingdom because they fought for it. It's their kingdom by way of inheritance. It's their kingdom because their king owns it. Again, who are the saints? It's all of God's people. To be one of God's people, to be one of God's children, to be a part of his bride, means that I receive everything because of family relation that the king has and owns. At the end, this is our father's world. This is our father's world. And who does the father give it to? He gives it to his son. And who belongs to his son? All who have been redeemed in him. And all who have been redeemed in him take possession and receive this kingdom that shall never fade away. Astounding. This is good news, in case you didn't know. This is good news. And this is the message of the New Testament as well. If we look at Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, again, Revelation, very difficult to interpret through its symbolic language and apocalyptic language from beginning to end. But here John sees a vision of those who were martyred 
those who were persecuted for the name of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, John looks and sees in heaven this vision. And he sees these people and they're singing a song. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. They're singing to Jesus. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Kind of sounds like what the Son of Man receives in Daniel 7, right? You have, listen to this, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is what it means to possess and receive the kingdom. We're going to talk about that maybe today, maybe tomorrow or the week after. I don't know. They shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They keep singing, worthy is the lamb. But what happens to the people of God? Here John gets a little glimpse of what Daniel talks about in chapter 7. That the saints, the people of God, the ones oppressed by the beast, the ones oppressed by the Antichrist and the horn, those who are oppressed and destroyed by evil people throughout time, they are the ones that rule and reign forever with their king. Evil has an expiration and every evil deed will be judged accordingly. This is good news. This is good news. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to live in a world without evil. And I'm just not talking about other people's evil. I'm talking about my own. I'm talking about the sin that is in Dan Sardinas' heart. As I wrestle day after day with my sinful nature, walking according to the Spirit of God like every other Christian when we look at the destruction of sin, we just not need to look at others, also look at ours, at ours and what we've been redeemed from. That one day, Christ will save us from the very presence of this sin, not just evil people, but our own evil desires and wicked, wickedness. But these people look like they have been overcome by the beast. But in the end, they are overcomers because of the king. And they have been made to be a kingdom of priests to God and they shall reign on the earth. <laughs> Reigning on the earth. We're, we're going to get back to that in a minute. <clears throat> but here's the message. Here's the message that John is writing to these seven churches in Revelation who are undergoing the persecution of Nero and Domitian, the Roman Caesars who were killing Christians. Here's the message in Daniel chapter 7 to the... Jews in Babylon who have just been oppressed by the beast Nebuchadnezzar and, and the empire of Babylon and then later Persia and Greece and Rome. Here's the message. Hang on, saints of God. Hang on, saints of God. Yes, you are being killed. You are being threatened. You are being persecuted. But even if you die, it does not end in your defeat. It won't always be like this. 
You won't always be killed. You won't always be persecuted. You won't always be oppressed forever. For in the end, the beast doesn't win. The little horn doesn't win. You receive the kingdom, not Satan. You receive the kingdom, not any godless governmental politician or empire. The people of God will rule and reign forever. This is our Father's world. This is the property of the king. So here's the big question. Here's the big question that we got to answer. When is this kingdom? When is this kingdom? If you remember from last week in Daniel chapter 7, as the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days, this is the context of what this says here. And he's being presented before the Ancient of Days. This is two verses before this receiving and possessing the kingdom. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he sits down at the right hand of the Father till his enemies are made his footstool. When when does the kingdom begin? It begins at that time. It begins at the first coming of the Lord Jesus. There's really two parts of the kingdom. If you're going to understand the what this kingdom that we're going to possess and receive means, you have to understand it in two parts, two phases. Phase one is the inauguration of the kingdom. Phase two is the consummation of the kingdom. The inauguration of the kingdom happened with the first coming of Jesus into this world. The consummation of the kingdom will happen at the second coming of Christ. So if you get confused, okay, what's what? Just think, first coming, second coming. Inauguration, consummation. That's how you think of this kingdom. Perhaps it might make you make sense of it when you think of your own salvation. Our salvation is inaugurated when we believe. We have eternal life now. But our salvation is not fully realized for all it will be right now, right? Because we still sin and we live in a broken world and we wrestle day and night with flesh and, not with flesh and blood. Our salvation is inaugurated when we believe, but when we die or at the second coming, our salvation will be consummated, we will be glorified, we'll receive our new bodies at the second coming, and our salvation will be fully realized, consummated at the second coming. Same thing that happens in creation. The kingdom comes and the kingdom is fully realized later. Let let me give you another way to think about it. The inauguration of the kingdom or the first coming of Jesus is like the wedding ceremony. The blessings of a new relationship begins. Once the ceremony is over, the bride and groom are legally married. But the ceremony isn't the marriage, isn't it? The ceremony just begins and inaugurates what is to be in this covenant relationship between this man and the woman. The consummation of the marriage is the honeymoon. What begins at the ceremony is then fully realized at the honeymoon. Can I get an amen? 
All right. I heard some guys say amen. The consummation of the marriage is at the honeymoon. The wedding, the ceremony begins the relationship. The honeymoon consummates that relationship. The benefits of marriage are fully realized. This is how the two comings of Jesus are need to be seen. And there's no mistake why we are referred to as what? The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. He's come to purchase our salvation. He's come to make us his people. But at the second coming, we will fully realize what all that means forever. And so us, you and I here, living in between these two realities. We live in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We live in between the ceremony and the honeymoon. Does that make sense? Ever been to a really long reception? (laughs) Right? Really long reception. We live in between those realities. Right? The bride and groom are married. The party started. Let's party. But the honeymoon is coming. This is what it means to be a Christian right now. Therefore, the kingdom of God is a present reality. Some theologians even use this wording. The kingdom is already, but not yet. It's already here, but it's not fully realized for all that it will be one day. It's already here because Christ came the first time. He lived, he obeyed God, he died, he resurrected, he ascended to heaven. He inaugurates the kingdom by sitting down on the throne and waiting for all his enemies to be made his footstool. But one day it will be fully realized when he comes back. Now for the rest of our time this morning, we're just going to focus on the inauguration of the kingdom. Next week, we'll talk about the consummation of the kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom with his first coming, which is why the New Testament says things like this. Maybe you're sitting here saying, Dan, I thought the kingdom was future. Well, listen to what, how the New Testament puts it. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, listen to what he preaches right before he baptizes Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Not coming. It's at hand. It's here. It's near. Right here. It's at hand. And then he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus begins his public ministry. Even Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 1, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's Jesus saying? I'm here. It's a new day. The kingdom is now. It's at hand. We're inaugurating the kingdom What is the kingdom? It's the rule of God. It's the rule of God over God's people, which will consummate in the the rule of the world. 
Even Paul writes about the present nature of the kingdom. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? The kingdom of His beloved Son. That's present tense. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A Christian is one who has a new national identity. We were a part of the kingdom of darkness when we were born. But when we believed, when Christ saved us, we've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, which again is present tense because it began when Christ came the first time. All these are glimpses of the future. All these are anticipatory moments that make us and look forward to the honeymoon, that make us look forward to what? The second coming. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus did this. During his life and ministry, when he came the first time, he gave us a sneak peek of what a consummated kingdom would look like. So what did he do? Well, to prove his divinity, to prove that he was Messiah, to prove that he would be the Davidic king who would sit on David's throne forever and to rule God's people in righteousness and to be that the son of man who comes with the ancient of days, he healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, the sick, and he even raised the dead. Why? Even though he did that during his public ministry, people still die. People are still deaf and blind and lame and sick. Jesus gave us a brief picture of what it will look like when the kingdom fully comes. There will be one day no blindness, no deafness, no lameness, no sickness, and no more death. What else did Jesus do during his public ministry? He cast out demons. Very important. Very important to understand the coming of the first kingdom. Because this is the smoking gun. In Matthew chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, by the way, Jesus is speaking to people, Pharisees here, who are accusing him of casting out demons in the name of a demon, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so Jesus picks up on this, and this is what he tells them. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But listen to this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Has come upon you. Jesus and the apostles spoke of the kingdom in present tense 
a current and present reality. And the proof of that is what? I came into this world and I cast out demons. And look what he says in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man that he's referring to is Satan, the great deceiver, the serpent who appears in the garden to deceive Eve and Adam and is the persecutor and oppressor of God's people from all time. He's the God of this world, little case G. He's the prince of the power of the air. This world, ever since the fall, has been under his domain. Of course, he's even under God's sovereign rule even then. But this is a satanic kingdom since the beginning of the garden. And Jesus says, if I have cast out demons, then you know that the rule of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because how can you do that unless you first broken into his house, plundered his goods, and tied him up? This is his world. You can't do this unless you first take care of him. And Jesus says, I'm able to do this because the kingdom of God is now a present reality because Satan has been bound. That is so key language. That is key language to understanding Scripture and prophecy and revelation. This doesn't mean that Satan isn't active because he's tied up. Oh, Satan, we still know, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This doesn't mean that Satan is not active in his task of blinding the hearts of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. That's what Paul says, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from hearing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan is very much active, but he's been bound. Because when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He said, you are toast. This is not your world anymore. And the things that you once did, I'm restricting you. I'm tying you up. I'm limiting you, what you can now do. I have plundered your house, plundered your goods. And now, as a proof, I'm sending out my disciples, and they are casting out demons who obey you. This is why when the demons saw Jesus, they were terrified and struck a great fear in them. Because Jesus has plundered their house. He's broken in like a thief in the night, if you will. And has come in binding Satan. And he proves this. Not just by his public ministry. But by dying on the cross. And by resurrecting on the third day. So that his gospel would go forth. Amazing. He's been bound, he's been plundered, he's been greatly restricted. In the same way that when Satan comes to God, in the case of Job, God says, you can do whatever you want, except one thing. You, can kill, you can't kill him. 
And so Satan does everything he can except one thing. Satan has always been bound by a sovereign God. There's been a time from Genesis through the coming of Jesus that Satan had reign to do what he wanted to deceive the nations, to blind their hearts. There was a time where the message of God was only for the people of God in Israel. And if you wanted to know the true God, you had to be a Jew. But now that Jesus has come, he has now bound Satan from deceiving the nations anymore. So now the gospel can advance to the ends of the world without hindrance, saving all of God's elect without failure. And this is exactly what John writes about in Revelation chapter 21, chapter 20, excuse me, which I will say chapter 20 is the most hotly debated passage of scripture in the entire Bible because it talks about this kingdom, this reign often referred to as a millennial reign of Christ. And of course, if you haven't picked up already, and I've shared with you before, my view of the end times is on millennial because I believe the kingdom is now. And the language in Revelation 20 is symbolic of that reign. Let's read what Revelation 20 says and see how it compares to what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 12. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I believe that this refers to the inauguration of the kingdom, of the binding of Satan, of the victory of Christ. Thousand years is not a literal thousand years as apocalyptic language as we have seen already is not always to be taken literally. A thousand means a long period of time, just like around the throne of the ancient of days were 10,000 upon 10,000. A thousand is 10 times 10 times 10, which is the number of ultimate completion in the Hebrew language. With the obedience of Jesus and his death, his burial and his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension and sitting on the right hand of the Father, he has bound the strong man Satan from doing the one thing he loves to do, inspire evil beasts to ravage the people of God and to keep the nations from hearing the gospel. This is good news, friends. And what's the one thing he's bound from doing any longer? Deceiving the nations. Do whatever you want. Can't deceive the nations. And this is why after the ascension, the apostles can go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Satan has been bound. He cannot deceive the nations. And the people of God possess the kingdom of God, which is now in its inaugurated form. It's here already, but not yet what it all will be one day. Satan cannot stop one sinner whom God has elected from coming to salvation. 
The gospel will be successful. This is a promise. Jesus doesn't lose anyone along the way. No longer reserved for within the boundaries of the nation of Israel, now the gospel goes forward unhindered to the ends of the world. And this is exactly what's been happening since that time. Since that time, what began with 120 people in an upper room and the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost to empower the church and birth the church. Now the church has been exploding for 2,000 years, spreading the gospel and the reign of Christ in them to the nations. The kingdom is possessed by God's people now, which is the church of God. But one day, one day, this kingdom will be fully consummated. And we'll see that next week. But remember, this is parallel to what Daniel chapter 2 says. In Daniel chapter 2, if you remember the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a giant statue with four different kinds of metals. You had gold and silver and bronze and iron. And then at the end of that dream, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a stone from heaven came and smashed the feet of this statue, so that it blew away like the chaff in the wind, if you remember. This rock that comes, of course, we said, is this picture of this messianic kingdom that will come. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Here this kingdom is seen as being inaugurated as it smashes the statue. But this stone in Daniel 2 doesn't stay a little stone. What does it do? Over time, it grows to be a huge mountain that doesn't take one geographic location, but it fills the entire earth. What begins in Jerusalem with the disciples is that stone that came from heaven, the messianic rule of the son of David sitting at the right hand of the father till his enemies are his footstool. And it has grown and grown over time. Why? Because the evil one has been bound from deceiving the nations. And it will grow like a mountain and it will fill the whole world until he comes back and it's all she wrote. I got a lot more to go but we will save it for next week. And providentially, did not plan this, it's Palm Sunday as the king rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. I didn't plan that. It just worked out that way. We see the kingdom inauguration continue next week, but we will see how it looks like when it's fully consummated and what God has been doing for 2,000 years, and what does it mean to rule and reign with Christ? Oh, such good stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
so much for your word. Thank you so much for the victory and the rule and reign of King Jesus, that his gospel cannot fail, that the kingdom will come in its full fruition, that it has already been inaugurated, and it's being built up and spread around the world like a mountain that's growing like a little seed that is planted and turns into a mustard tree. So many examples that the Lord Jesus gives of the kingdom, how it starts out small but then grows. As your people, the people whom you've called by your name for your own glory, hear this gospel and are saved. And the gospel of the kingdom of our God continues to grow until one day... The world is only filled with God's people. One day, no beast, no evil rulers, no persecution anymore of the people of God. One day, the honeymoon will come. And this beautiful union of the relationship of Christ and his bride will be fully realized as the kingdom is consummated into a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where the people of God rule and reign like Adam was supposed to with dominion over the face of the earth. Oh God, let this encourage our hearts as we live today in between the wedding ceremony and the honeymoon. And we're wondering, when will this reception ever be over? When will we get to the good stuff? When will we wait until King Jesus comes? How much longer must we wait? God, only you know the answer for that. We pray it is today. May you come in all your glory, saving your people. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do your work among your people through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.